All right, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out. To those who are joining us at home, thank you so much for, or at work, thank you so much for tuning into our live stream. Uh, and please share it so that folks know that they can watch this now or later on the Elmhurst Facebook page. And we'll also share it to the Ohio Valley Cloak and Dagger page as well as the Towngate Theater page later on this afternoon. All right, to those who are in here, welcome. Thank you so much. My name is Pete Fernball. I'm artistic director of the Ohio Valley Cloak and Dagger Company. This is Mr. Tim Thompson back here. He is director of Ogilvy Institute's Towngate Theater. And over here, this is Carissa Martin. She is sound effects director for my company and acts at both of our theaters. So the three of us have spent the last few months here executing a grant uh, from Ogilvy Institute called the Creative Aging for Lifelong Learning Grant. Um, you know grants, they all have long names. What that means is we wanted to come in here and do a creative project that also had benefits for the residents uh, and would culminate in a public performance of some kind, and that's what this is. Our first three weeks were spent interviewing about 12 to 15 residents, and uh, we talked to them about their lives. They ranged in age from late 70s all the way up to 102. So we have a, a, an oral history here of Wheeling that stretches from 1919 until 2022 that's going to play out for you over the next 80 minutes. Now, we have done this in the form of an audio drama. So our, our cast, the Elmhurst radio players up here, our cast will be acting from their scripts, um, will go act by act, decade by decade, and you're going to hear a lot of interesting stories, things you probably didn't know about Wheeling, even if you've lived here all your lives. So we hope you really enjoy it, and we hope you really enjoy our cast performances. Many of these folks have never acted before, and that was part of the purpose of the grant. We wanted to give them a chance to do something they've never done before. Some, it's been a while since they've acted, and it's been an honor to work with each and every one of them. So I hope you enjoy our afternoon. Here now is the Elmhurst radio players with That's Just the Way It Was. Live from Elmhurst, House of Friendship, Ogilvy Institute's Towngate Theater, in partnership with the Ohio Valley Cloak and Dagger Company, presents That's Just the Way It Was, an original radio drama starring the Elmhurst radio players based upon stories from their lives in Wheeling and around the world. Act One, Children of the Twenties. The 1920s is remembered as a robust period in American history. Much like life today, life was roaring by at a fast and furious pace. Generally speaking, the same was true for families in Wheeling. However, life was relatively normal on a day-to-day -day basis. Folks married, worked, and had children of their own. In fact, two of the residents here at Elmhurst were born in the earliest years of the 1920s. I was behind the Christmas tree. That's where my parents found me. Santa Claus brought me and put me behind the Christmas tree. There, there, little one. Now remember, no crying for two days. Do that favor for Santa, won't you? And Bertha, you listened to Santa. You were so good for two days. You never cried for anything. And then uh, on... December the 27th, which is my birthday, I cried, and that's when my parents found me. My name is Bertha Sokno, and I have lived in Wheeling all my life. 
When I was a child, we lived on Pine Hill. There's only one picture of me from that time. I was five and standing in a, a meadow next to the great pumpkin. I guess it was worth a lot of money and it's sort of a contest. The pumpkin was just supposed to cost a couple of hundred dollars or a thousand. Who, who knows? I hate pumpkins. <laughs> My name is Naomi Hupp. I was born on October the 11th, 1919. I started out in Moundsville, but not the penitentiary. My passion is in life is music, but I owe my success as a music teacher to my grandmother. Now, Naomi, you have the two choices. You can either practice your piano or you can do the dishes, but you have to do one or the other. When she put it to me like that, well, I sat down and practiced the piano and practiced and practiced. Grandma, are you finished washing dishes yet? Not yet, darling. Keep practicing. Well, Grandma, it's taking you so long. You must be washing everybody's dishes. Over the years, I've taught music across all grades, from kindergarten to high school. I played the piano in church, and I always learned to play the pipe organ at Simpson United Methodist Church. But I owe it all to my grandmother because she made sure I practiced. My mother would bathe the baby, and she seemed to always be a baby in our house. Mother would keep heating the water on the stovetop and adding it to the tub. We were fortunate to have the tub. By the time it was my turn, sometimes the water was pretty dirty. <laughs> and then around 13, I was beginning to know, well, you know, develop, and one day my mother said, Take this bucket of water up to your bedroom, and uh, you just take a sponge bath there. My mother always sewed my clothes. She was a stay-at-home mom, and it, in that picture I had on, I can see dress I'm wearing is a plain old homemade thing. She had a sewing machine, and she sewed everything except my brother's T-shirts. And that's not, not hard to make a dress like the one I wore. You just got to sew the pieces together. But a t-shirt, it's hard to make. My mother used to cut my hair, too. She sewed clothes and cut the hair and milked the cows. We always had one or two cows. And when I was a little, I couldn't go along with her to milk the cow so because there was no place for me to sit. My mother would give me a, a box of records for the, for the Victorola to play with while I'd stack them up and make stuff out of them. And then one day when I was old enough, my mother said, Bertha, it's time for you to learn to milk the cows. Well, I tried and I tried to milk the cow. Okay, I'm finished. Oh, no, Bertha. There's still some more milk in there. You've got to milk them dry. If you don't milk them dry, they'll get dry. Well, I just couldn't get the milk to come. And no matter how hard I tried, you have to do it a certain special way, I guess. I never figured it out. 
big deal back then. My father worked at the post office, and really, it was a full-time job. <laughs> he went out first thing in the morning to go and meet the train and get the mail and bring it to the post office where he sorted it out. He did this every morning, didn't matter what the weather was. You didn't think about the weather. It wasn't as important then as it is now. My father worked at the butcher shop in East Wheeling, Weimer's Packing House. And boy, he used to bring home the good meat. Look at this, Bertha, a whole loin. We'll have pork chops for days. <clears throat> Maybe that's, that's why I love to cook so much and why I eventually became head cook in Sherrod Middle School because of my father's and those pork chops. Act two, Wheeling and the Great Depression. October 29th, 1929, Black Tuesday. The stock market crashed and the world's economic order was turned upside down. We all know history's broad strokes about this time, but how did it affect people in our hometown? The folks here at Elmhurst have vivid memories of the Great Depression. We begin with B. Stelman. Did you know that during that time, many of the executives in New York jumped out of windows and killed themselves? Some of those executives started riding the rails. They would stop at people's homes for food. If you wanted to feed them, you knew to put something out. My mother would always put a little, a quilt outside. A quilt was usually a good thing because they could see that quilt and they knew there was somebody in that house who would help them. Mom, what are you doing? Why'd you hang the quilt outside? I'm fixing some food. I got to get it ready for these men to come by. Men come by? What are you talking about? Just hang on, B. You'll see. You have to understand, these men were not hobos. These were executives from New York City who lost everything in the crash. They came to my mother's house in Wheeling because they knew she would feed them. Afternoon, ma'am. We heard that you, well, we heard... That I might have food? Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of shameful, we know, to, you know... It is not shameful at all. Don't you ever think that. Now, look, I don't have much food today, but what I have, I will share with you. It's very kind of you, ma'am. There's a little bench in the backyard. You go out there and relax. Enjoy this beautiful day and I'll bring the food out to you in a few minutes. Thank you, ma'am. These businessmen who had been forced to take up the life of a hobo, they loved my mother. I was astounded because I was little, but I was old enough to understand what was going on. I was amazed that my mother had the nerve, that she was brave enough to do something like that. My name is Emily Wilson. I came of age during the Depression, but I have to say the Depression didn't affect me in that I was hungry or down about it. I was too young and everybody was poor. You didn't think about it. Emily? Here, Miss Miller. 
William? He can't be at school today, Miss Miller. Again, do you know why, Emily? Well, I, um... Uh, why don't you tell me after class, Emily? That boy couldn't come to class because he didn't have shoes. Well, as soon as our church found out, they bought him shoes. William? Here, Miss Miller. People got through it as a community. It was tough during the Depression. We had to ration stamps. You had to save them. They were different colors and worth the money. You could make change with them like you could dollar bills, but you had to save enough to last a month, or maybe it was a week. I, I'm not really sure. Remember, my parents divided them out so they'd have enough stamps to last us until we could get some more. My dad was working at the WPPA, the Workers Progressive Administration, and his dinner would sit out in the sun for a half a day. And my mother was afraid it might spoil, so she made us take it down to him. Two of us had to go together, though. We never went, uh, we never went alone. My grandparents were Irish. Both mother and dad had been born in Galway, Ireland. The only one who had a job during the Depression was my grandmother. She did housework, and at that time, she supported us all. Ed, where are you? I'm in my stoking room, Margaret. What's the racket about? You'll never guess how much I earned today. More than usual, I hope. There's no smoke for the stogie rolling trade these days. Trade dollars. Trade dollars? Ooh, doggie. That's the highest pay ever. <laughs> Was one of your customers nipping at the bottle during lunch? <laughs> she gave it to me for car fare. Imagine that. Imagine that. During the Depression, there simply wasn't much of a call for stogie rollers, even though Papap was one of the best. He'd worked for Marsh Stogies and had a place at home where he could roll the cigars by hand. Stogie rolling had a good name here. Folks like my granddad rolled cigars that were superior to anything made in Ohio or beyond. And his hands were so soft from the tobacco oil, they would have put most women to shame. I remember how gentle and soft those hands were. Emily, Emily, where are you? Mert and Marge are almost on. I'm coming, Pap-Pap. Now let's see here, CBS, Channel. Did I miss anything? No, no, no. You're just in time, dear. Oh, good. I sure hope Mert and Marge are able to open the old Hayfields Theater tonight. <laughs> Me too, Emily. Me too. Now hop up on here, sweetie. Guess what I brought down with me, Pap Pap. Oh. So you think me hair needs a little work, does it? Just a little bit, Pap Pap, may I? Well, who am I to say no to me only? granddaughter. <laughs> My Pap-Pap was so wonderful. He was going bald, and I'd sit on his lap with water and a comb and make curls as we'd listen to two or three cereals on the radio in the evening. On Saturdays, my grandmother and I would walk about four blocks to the Princess Theater, and for five cents, you could see a double feature a news segment called The March's Time, a cartoon, 
and a cereal that you couldn't wait to see the next week. My favorite was Zorro. And then you would see previews for upcoming movies, all for a nickel. And it went all afternoon. My grandmother always called it the nickel shooter. It was a happy time for me. But I knew it wasn't a happy time for everyone. There were people who stood on the corner of 12th and Market with a crate of apples. Penny for an apple? Just one penny for an apple? Penny for an apple? I can tell you where the Dairy Queen is now in Elm Grove. That was an open field at the time. There were men who would gather around the barrel. Coal would fall off the trains that went through there, and they'd collect it and make a big fire in the barrel. They weren't dressed very warmly, so that fire is how they'd stay warm. I remember sitting on the bus and seeing those men around the barrel, and it was heartbreaking because you knew they were cold. As an adult, I went on a trip to Washington, D.C., and saw the statue of FDR and walked around the memorial. Sculpted on the side was a group of men waiting in a bread line, much like these men I saw around the barrel in Elm Grove. I burst into tears. It just brought everything back because that upset me. Those were the people who suffered. They probably didn't have a family. My grandparents were a gift. Act three, the flood of 1936. After being battered with heavy snow and rain, Wheeling experienced the worst flood in its history from March 17th to March 19th 1936. According to the Ohio County Public Library, quote, the river crested at a record 55.5 feet on March 19th, which was 19.5 feet over the flood stage, and flood water inundated the island, much of south and center Wheeling, and even the downtown streets as far east as Chaplin. The suspension bridge and steel bridge were closed and the market auditorium was converted to a refuge shelter and makeshift hospital. Utilities were shut down, supplies cut off, and disease threatened. More than 20,000 people were driven from their homes and 16 people lost their lives." End quote. As with the Great Depression, this was a formative moment in time for many of the residents here at Elmhurst. My name is Joan Mudge. And I was almost six years old when the flood of 1936 hit. <clears throat> it's an experience I've never forgotten. We lived in a second-floor apartment that was higher than most second-floor apartments because you had to walk up four or five steps to get to the first floor. Well, the flood's coming, and it comes, and it comes, and it comes, and it keeps on coming. My uncle, who was my mother's brother, and her father, my grandfather, are what I'll call river guys. They wasted no time in getting out there in a boat to go around helping people. So they notified my mother to get ready on such and such a morning. We're going to be called to take New Orleans, Florida. There's no idea how much more water there's going to be. The water is almost up to our apartment. It won't take much for it to start pouring in. Well, my uncle and grandfather <clears throat> arrived at our apartment 
and my mother, my father, and I were waiting on the steps, just like they told us. My mother and I get in the boat. Easy, Joey, easy. Uh, I, I, I've got her, I've got her, I've got her. Uh, uh, now, now it's your turn, bud. Uh, put one foot in the boat, uh, push off with the other. Bud, did you hear me? Daddy, aren't you gonna get in the boat? Uh, I can't do it. I'm too afraid. Bud, bud, we don't have much time. This current's too strong. I, I can't keep the boat Bud, are you listening to me? But my dad just stood there. Turns out he never could swim. And, <clears throat> and he was simply petrified to have one foot in the boat and the other foot on the step to push off. So he's fooling around and fooling around, and we're doing our best to keep the boat up against the steps. Finally, my uncle had enough. Bud, for heaven's sake, get in the boat! I can't. I'll fall in. Bud, I promise if you fall in the water, I'll make sure you don't drown. Yeah, right. Finally, Dad ventures in, and of course, he doesn't fall in the water. But the danger didn't stop there. My uncle and grandfather began to guide the boat down Route 2, where the electric company is. Suddenly, my uncle shouted out, Telephone lines! Everyone duck! He had kept having to duck under telephone lines the whole way there. That's how high the water line was. Thankfully, there were homes that were higher than the flood, and my mother's distant cousin lived in one of those homes. We went there and stayed with them until things settled down. And where did my uncle and grandfather end up? Where else? At a party. That's right. People would gather in the dry areas and have a wild time, drinking and playing cards, waiting for the flood to crest. In fact, we had so many floods back then, not just in 36, that people would throw what my mother called a flood picnic. A what? A flood picnic, Joni. We can't let all of the food in the icebox go to waste now, can we? I wanted to see the flood for myself. And we were staying at my aunt's house because our, her basement was flooded while my father, Elmer Rudd, he was out helping fight the water as soon as we got there, ran to the grate, and stars stood in front of the war to get warm. And then the radio was playing and in the background, and suddenly I heard. If anybody knows the whereabouts of Elmer Grove, please tell him to get home as quickly as he can. His house is burning down. I repeat, if anybody knows the whereabouts of Elmer Grove, please tell him to get home as quickly as he can. His house is burning down. Well, people started searching the streets for my father, and finally they found him carrying a sack of potatoes on his shoulders for the flood refugees. Come on, Edward, you're gonna go with me. But I gotta get these taters over to the shelter. Didn't you hear the radio, Elmer? You gotta get home fast. Dear Lord, look at that. I've gotta try to save some of our clothes. No, Elmer, just let it go. Let our family's house burn to the ground. It's too far gone, Elmer. You run in there, you may never come out. Then what would your family do? So they let it burn to the ground because it would be easier to clean up the rubble and anything that 
survived would probably have to be thrown, burned anyway because of the smoke damage. Children, it's not that bad. Once I get rid of all the hay, we'll sleep in the barn. The barn? Honey, I'm pregnant. Oh, uh, right. I sort of forgot. What with, uh, you know, the flood and everything and the house burning down. Ugh. Why don't we just live with the neighbors? A few of them have offered us rooms. No, honey, we can't do that. we got to be together. If you think I'm delivering this child in a barn... Midwives deliver babies everywhere, honey. It'll be fine. If you think I'm delivering our baby in a barn, no. I'll start laying the foundation for the house tomorrow. <laughs> and once the foundation was laid and the Red Cross bought the frame for us, the framework for us, my father worked around the clock to meet the deadline. And two days before my mother delivered the baby, we were living in our new house. My husband, Bill, <coughs> was in the same age bracket as me, so he was almost six. But they lived on Wheeling <laughs> Island, which was hit harder than South Wheeling, where I lived. He once told me, People would toss things they didn't want anymore outside, hoping it would you know, float away in the flood. One of my neighbors even put a baby grand piano outside. It wasn't in great shape to begin with, and that piano ended up in my front yard. My dad called our neighbor up immediately and said, Your piano's in my yard! Get it out! Now! Act 4, Scene 1. Growing up in wartime. On Sunday, December 7, 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, effectively guaranteeing the United States entry into World War II. I remember very clearly Pearl Harbor because my grandmother and I had gone to the movies that Sunday afternoon. We'd moved out of my grandparents' house by then. So after the movie was over, my grandmother and I said goodbye at the Osiris Temple and went our separate ways. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air. President Roosevelt has just announced. I went the home, and I remember hearing on the radio about Pearl Harbor. I was surprised. But when I went to bed, I remember this distinctly. A plane went over, and I was scared. Because in my mind, I was wondering if they were going to attack. There weren't as many planes in the air as there are today, so it was usually pretty quiet at night, and the planes were so much noisier back then. I was in junior high, so I was old enough to understand how serious this was. That plane became my biggest association with Pearl Harbor and the war because that was the first day I knew they were after us. My name is Judy McNabb, and my father was a dairy farmer. He wasn't in the war, all of my uncles were, but he wasn't because he had had rheumatic fever when he was a teenager, and when he tried to enlist, he couldn't pass the test. A lot of people used to get rheumatic fever. But I remember doing things like taking cigarette packages apart because inside the pack, the lining was foil and that's what we'd save. Then we'd put a big bow on it and the people would come and pick it up. I remember my dad especially using rations at the gra gas pump. 
we never had butter, but we had this white stuff, and he had a little package that had orange stuff in it. My job was to put the orange stuff in the white stuff and mix it up and make it look like butter. That's just the way it was. Over in England, another one of our residents had already experienced the horrors of war personally. The Germans launched a bombing campaign against the United Kingdom known as the Blitz that lasted from September 7th, 1940 until May 10th, 1941. My name is Naomi Dorrance and I was in London during the Blitz. But thankfully, we weren't hiding in basements since we lived in the suburbs. My mother, a woman doctor, had been murdered by her brother, my uncle, before the war. So we were already dealing with a heavy load of grief. My father was left alone to raise us, and I was doing my best to help him raise my brothers. Like my mother, he was also a doctor, and he served on air raid duty. Father would ride around the streets at night with the cops, looking for people who needed help getting to hospital. He used to tell an absolutely terrible story about one of these runs. After a long night, I rode with one of these young bobbies back to his house. When we arrived, it wasn't there. His home had been bombed in the Brits while he was doing his duty. And within the rubble were the remains of his wife and five children. The Blitz was a nightmare to live through. Just trying to get back to boarding school was a hardship because you didn't want to get on a train since the Germans loved bombing trains. Both of my male cousins were killed on trains, you see, and we were always working with these things that we had to carry all the time, these gas masks. We couldn't leave them anywhere. It was an amazing thing to be a teenage girl in wartime because there, there were all these men on the train. And they all had the names of their countries on their shoulders, so you knew where they were from. My grandparents lived in London, and I would ride on the train to see my grandma. I was talking to a guy one day. He was Polish. I was reading a French book because I was studying French in college, and he said to me, Do you speak French? Uh, well... <laughs> Don't worry. I will not test you. Yes, I do. I, I mean, we. Oui. Well, that's a start. <laughs> Where do you live? Oh, I go to London University. Ah, and what is your name? Naomi. Naomi Marigold. Naomi Marigold. Pretty name for a pretty girl. Thank you. Ah, uh, uh, uh. I mean, merci. <laughs> Much better. This is a story about how dangerous it was for young girls during the war. I was 17, maybe 18, and I told him where I went to college. And I told him my name. And guess what happened a couple of weeks later? Hello, Naomi. Do you remember me? Yes, you guessed it. He turned up at my door at my college, and that was 20 miles from where we had spoken. It was clear what he wanted. Oh, you don't mind if I come in, do you, Naomi? Of course you don't. 
S'il vous plaît, partez. Ah, your French is getting better. No, Naomi, I don't think I'll leave. I don't think you will either. There was nobody to call for help. I was just alone in this tiny room. I was terrified. I had no defense, none. I thought to myself, how am I going to get out of this one? Well, I'm a doctor's daughter, and my daddy taught me well. Naomi, there is nothing to be afraid of. I I'm sorry, but I'm guessing I know what you think you came for. <laughs> it's for time. We must be here for each other. But, but I believe that you came at the wrong time. The wrong time? There is no wrong time, pretty girl. What would you say to that? Well, it just so happens... Yes, yes? Um, I, I am going through what happens to every woman and girl in the world once a month. You mean... <gasps> you mean... Yes. And he shot up and ran off. I'll always remember what I said to him. It's what happens to every girl once a month. <laughs> I doubt he ever messed with a doctor's kid again. Back here in Wheeling, efforts to win the war were in full swing. Blonox and other steel mills devoted their resources to tanks, weapons, and other equipment. As a result, this area became one of the biggest wartime manufacturers in the world. World War II officially ended in Sunday, September 2nd, 1945, when Japan surrendered to the Allies and our boys began to return home. Act Four, Scene Two, Loving and Living in Peacetime. Thank God he survived because he wasn't my husband yet. But he did get nicked up and he ended up in a hospital in Oregon for a long time. Anyway, I was at a dance with my girlfriends and everyone was sitting there scoping out the boys when Mike starts walking our way. I think he's coming over to you. Me? Why would he ever want to come to me? Looks like he's more interested in Rachel. More interested in Rachel? Well, we'll just see about that. Where are you going? Come on, Mike's not the only boy here. Exactly. So what did I do? I went out and danced with some other fella, and my girlfriends knew that. Hey, Mike. Oh, hey there, Susie. What's going on? Do you see Albert out there on the dance floor? Yeah, dancing with flat-footed Fred. <laughs> flat-footed? That's not what Berta says. In fact, she says he's anything but flat-footed. Anything but. Is that so? Huh. Well, we'll just see about that. So Mike came onto the dance floor and cut in and didn't stop dancing with me until the night was over. Then he drove me home in his red convertible. But when he dropped me off, he didn't even kiss me. You heard me right. He never kissed her nothing. As I was walking up the steps to my house, I thought to myself, hmm, and I turned around and ran back down and... Did you forget something, Alberta? Just one thing, Mike. I kissed him just a little bit through the window. 
Okay, maybe a m little bit more than a little bit. People tell me that's a great story, but it's the truth. It's actual, it's factual, everything is satisfactual. Zippity doo dah. You see, some things are funnier than in a fairy tale, but I always believed in fairy tales too. up moving to the States when I was in my early 20s. I met an American GI who was stationed in Europe, and he decided to get out and return to his home in Xenia, Ohio. We had a 10-month-old boy at the time, and for a few weeks, we stayed with his parents. I had never seen anything like it. My mother-in-law had these spiky flowers all over the house and my 10-month-old would touch them when I wasn't looking, and his hands would start to bleed. I said to my mother-in-law... Could you please move those spiky flowers to the mantelpiece? No. He has to learn. I couldn't believe her attitude. Later, we got a house, and our neighbor was this lovely lady who was also a nurse. She, she told me... You see, you don't understand. But you married into poor white trash. I didn't know what that was, but I learned. It was awful. I once wrote a letter to my dad in England and asked my mother-in-law to send it. Dad wrote back asking, How did your letter get so mashed up? When my mother-in-law was able to quote back what I had said in the letter, I realized she had opened it up, read it, then sealed it back up. My neighbor was right. That was what I had married into. And that's kind of rough when you've been a doctor's kid. That nurse actually saved my one baby's life, though. I had a baby born with a cleft palate and a hair lip, and I brought the child home from the hospital. And my oldest daughter, Barbara, who lives here, and is a is the reason I'm at Elmhurst said, Mommy, Mommy, the baby's making funny noises. And I pushed up the stairs, and this kid is gagging. Her <laughs> lips were torn back, and you could see the back of the throat. I knew there was something in there. I called the nurse, and she ran over, and she picked up this little baby by the feet and reached in her mouth. She pulled out all this gooky stuff that was gagging her. And that nurse, my neighbor, saved her life. My first husband eventually died of smoking too much, eating too much, screaming at people too much, and losing his temper all the time, and quite a bit of beer. That was no loss. But then I married the man who was his superior when my husband first went back into the military. Virgil Dorrance, whose name I have now. He was wonderful. My kids have said, I wish he'd be my father. That's a pretty amazing thing to say about, to say about anybody. Act five, wheeling in the 1950s. It may be hard to imagine now, but coming out of the war, wheeling was a busy, bustling town. My name is Shirley Melton. And I remember how big Wheeling was. 
I was president of the Junior League, and in order to be a member chapter, you had to have more than 50,000 people in your community. The Metropolitan Population Census revealed that we were well past that mark then. There was always something going on in this city. For example, at Christmas time, Wheeling's Christmas Parade was a big, big thing. Every high school participated. Santa Claus was in all the stores that we don't have now. <laughs> we were also a dance community. There was a very fancy, fancy white ball that you would go to at the Port Henry Club. My name is Charlene Goodwin, and one year around Christmas, my dad drove my mother into town to do some shopping. This was in the 1950s when Wheeling was quite the bustling city. Everyone would get dressed up. Honey, which dress do you think I should wear? The red dress or the one with polka dots? What's the occasion? I'm going shopping in Wheeling, of course. Now, which heels should I wear? While my mother went shopping, my dad stayed at home with my siblings and me. We spent the afternoon playing while Dad worked around the house. Hey, it's four o'clock. Hey, kids, time to go pick up your mom. So we jumped into our little 1950 Plymouth coupe. These seats are terribly itchy. Dad, I think they're giving me lice. One of the happiest days of my life was when we got rid of that car. Oops, oh, oh, wait here, kids. I almost forgot something. Be right back. Well, we were a musical family, and my dad was an entertainer at heart. He never missed the chance to have an audience, even if that audience were just passerbys on the street. Dad, why are we taking the ukuleles? Well, your mother said four o'clock. That really means five. So we'll have an hour to play. <laughs> Here, Charlene, this is for you. What's that? What's well, a tin cup? After what your mother spent, we could use a little extra change. So we got to Market Street in Wheeling, and we tumbled out of the car and began our Von Trapp act. We played and sang every Christmas song imaginable, and pretty soon a crowd gathered around us. Keep playing, kids. We never get this kind of response in McMeckin. <coughs> suddenly, <coughs> suddenly the crowd parted, and we could see our mother walking toward us. Hi, Mom. Hey, honey. And she kept on walking. Hey, lady, them's your kids, right? I haven't a clue who those panhandlers are. <laughs> the crowd began to laugh. My mother was so ticked at my father for bringing her children into Wheeling, looking so scurrilous and filthy, she went right on shopping, and we went right on playing. It was hysterical, but the funniest part of all is we wouldn't have ever learned to play those ukuleles if she hadn't bought them for us in the first place. And P.S., we made 75 cents in our tin cup. <laughs> my name is Rachel Davis. And our family moved back to Wheeling in 1954. It was still a thriving uh, at that time. You could go downtown and find all the sober people shopping on Main Street and all the drunks staggering around Pike Street. These two streets with those two groups of people 
ran parallel to each other. And that's what kept the city level, I think. My name is James, Jim Hossman. And after, after school, I went into the Air Force. That's where I spent a large part of the 50s in the Air Force for four years. I would recommend it for anybody, especially those people who don't have very much money and stuff. They teach you how to take care of yourself. I also spent nine months in the National Guard and I served in the Korean War working for the North American Air Defense Command. Our whole squadron was shipped over to Korea. They gave us a nice promotion. I made staff sergeant. So I spent a lot of time at night working. The Air Defense Command flew all night long when the weather was decent. When I came back home, I worked at Dayton. That's where they had a real nice Air Defense Command squadron. I was all, all over all kinds of Russian airplanes. We had them airplanes as quick as they did. I'm serious. We, we were testing them. The only thing I can say about that, that they were behind us in, in the avionics, and they probably still are. The only reason I got out was I started thinking I'd like to get married and ask myself, do I want to drag my kids all over? That's the only reason I got out, but I think my daughters would have been all right. Act six, the working men and wheeling of women. One characteristic of our community has been the work ethic of our citizens. I worked on the 90-inch mill up at the Mingo for a while. Whenever I walked into the hiring hall and laid my ticket down, they would say, And another guy from Wheeling. You're all hard workers up there. We have hard workers here. I worked construction work, and it didn't matter where I went to work the Pittsburgh or Detroit up and down the river, you hear the same thing. The guys from Wheeling are hard workers. Wheeling has that tradition, and that's what counts. I graduated from high school in 1946. The streets of Wheeling were packed back then. I worked at Wheeling Steel in the secretarial pool for three years. There were eight of us, and it wasn't always busy. But when somebody upstairs had a letter that needed dictating, they'd call down and you had better be ready. Eventually, I got married, had a baby, and quit. This was back when moms stayed home to raise their kids. That's just the way it was. I went to WVU in 1949, and I became a high school home economics teacher. 
After I raised my children, of course, I was a stay-at-home mother with my oldest son, when my oldest son was ready for college. And then when my youngest child was in the sixth grade, that's when I began to teach. And I taught part-time at first. And then finally I realized that that was ridiculous. I was doing all this work for lower pay. So I took a full-time teaching position in Belair, Ohio. I got that from a lot of people, and I would always say, Well, I was offered the job. Blair is a different area, but I love the people. It was a big athletic town. Not that Wheeling isn't, but it was really big over there. And they had a lot of athletes that went on professionally. At least back then they did. It's not so much now. Football was there entertainment. Everybody in town went to the games. Belair and Martin's Ferry had a big rivalry going and they had a big trophy called Sparky that went from one school to the next based on who won. It was the biggest thing to have Sparky. Woo! Sparky's ours! No Sparky's ours! Hey! Sparky's mine! Don't give me Sparky. I love being That's part nice of that. Sparky, 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 I went Sparky, to all the games Sparky, and had some football players in my general English class. That was an experience, which I taught as well. And there was more diversity over there. Wheeling's black community made up only 2% or less of its population then. But no matter their color, the folks of Belair love their town, and that's why they never consolidated with St. Clairsville, Martins Ferry, or Shadyside. They all love their towns and are loyal to their schools and their sports teams. I worked at the Ogilvy Golf Resort for 27 years in the restaurant part because my husband's restaurant, Papa's Meat, <coughs> took our sandwiches up there. I met so many golfers when they came through there. All those famous guys would ask, Where's Alberta? She's the only one around here who knows how to pour a drink. I became a, an electrician out of local Union 141. That's out Peter's Run Road. I served four years of apprenticeship. Now I think they've jacked it up to five years. You have to go an extra year to get the electronics. When I started working, I made a dollar and 25 cents an hour. And the guy I was working with, he had his journeyman's ticket. He was bitching to me one day. You know what that union out there wants? I have no idea. They want $3.20 an hour. That's going to break all these contractors, you know. Those contractors ended up making money hand over fist. I grew up in Beach Bottom, and when I was set to graduate from high school, my teacher asked me, what are you, what going? Are you going to do when you graduate? I hope I can get a job. You have to go to college. That's a joke. There's no way I could go to college. You go home tonight, and you tell your parents what I said. You tell them that I said 
You cannot get a job down in Wheaton. But that's what I've prepared myself for. I'm a good student. I can take shorthand 120 words a minute and translate it like that. Besides, my mom and dad don't have the money to send me to college. Well, we'll work on that. And I ended up going to college for education. And both teachers, they helped me. And then after that, I helped my younger brothers and sisters. They don't teach you how to be a teacher. You learn that on your own. One day, my superintendent and my advisor came to see me. The superintendent says, would you mind teaching second grade? No, I'm not teaching second graders. I didn't prepare myself to teach second graders. I prepared myself to teach fourth graders. I will only teach fourth graders. Well, I'm desperate. I need a second grade teacher. My advisor jumped in and said, She'll do it. Well, anyhow, I ended up teaching second grade. And every day when I would write my name on the board, this kid who was as big as me would come up behind me and erase it. Well, I put up with it for so long until one day I said, hey, I'm walking with you tonight. We're going to talk to your mother and I don't care whether you like it or not. So after school, I grabbed hold of him. No, no, no! And started dragging him down the street. And I demanded to know what his problem was. Well, when his mother got done telling me all the things that boy had been through because he was an oversized kid in his class, she was crying and I was crying. But you know, after that day, the boy and I got along just fine because he realized I really did care about him and I had his mother on my side. My very first teaching job was a one-room schoolhouse down by the river by Proctor. It was called Welcome School. I had all the grades through sixth grade combined, but no one was in fifth grade that year. A month before school was out, our janitor got angry in something or other and loudly declared, I quit! <laughs> so before the buses came, the kids and I would get together and clean the place. I was excited to teach at Welcome School, though, because I was actually making some money. <laughs> I was very un it was a very unique experience. I was with kids all the time. We ate the lunch together. We played outside together. I didn't even have my duty-free lunch. It was quite the experience. The kids were so great, though, and the older ones would help the younger ones. I had one little boy in the third grade, and he was just a little terror and his mother was the cook, and she would hear me reprimanding him. Now that I think about it, I could have handled it differently, but boy, he used to drive me crazy. He would misbehave the kids and they and would try to help him. They all worked together like that. I was only there one year before I moved on to another school where I taught the first grade for much of my career but I loved my time at Welcome School. I just loved being a teacher. And when it was time for me to retire, I wasn't ready to quit. Now that's a teacher. I was cleaning out my desk drawer the other day and I found some letters that some of the kids had written to me when they were in high school. They were just so sweet. 
I don't even know why I still have them. I was reading them over and just smiling and remembering the things they told me. This one little boy said, I remember before school started, I was afraid to come to school. And my mom asked if you could show me around the school. I always appreciated that you did that. I don't even remember doing that. Act six, the age of Aquarius and beyond. Despite all the turmoil of the 1960s and 70s, two major events occurred in Wheeling that would change the face of our city forever. In 1969, the Towngate Theater was established, and in 1976, three high schools in the Wheeling area were consolidated into Wheeling Park High School. And I remember the first time I walked into the church that's been Towngate's home since its founding. I think it was still being used by the church. It might have had a for sale sign out front, but when I saw this building, I immediately knew it was our future home. I had just moved here from Pittsburgh, and I was desperate to get a theater started. I immediately went to Hal O'Leary, the director of our little troupe, and said, we're doing theater in Ogilvy's Nature Center, for heaven's sake. You need to look at this church. No, no, it's a church. I don't have any use for churches, you know that. This church, Hal, has real possibility. It could easily be converted into a theater. Doesn't matter. A church is always a church. No matter what you call it on the outside, Betty. Hal, and I, well, we didn't always get along. I was independent and pushy and stubborn, and so is he. But when we worked together, we did great. Ogilvy did buy that church eventually, and when we first went in... There's nothing theatrical about this place. It's a church, like I said. Oh, I knew it. We're going to have to do it from scratch. <laughs> well, he was right, and we had no money. So we got to work. Ted Spilkler built the lights in Dearborn, and his wife handled the costumes. Augusta Evans designed the set, and other volunteers helped. And we decided it was time to do a production. For our first official main stage play, they settled on Cat on a Hot Tin Roof by Tennessee Williams with David Judy directing. Betty, I didn't see you at auditions. David, you and I both know there's no part for me in it. I just don't see myself as any of the characters. I want you to do the lead. The lead? You mean Maggie? The Elizabeth Taylor role? Are you kidding? That's not for me. And Peter Whitaker is playing Brick. Peter Whitaker. No, David, no, David, absolutely not. Trust me, Betty, this is the right casting. Well, I trusted him, and I ended up doing it, yes. I ended up playing the Elizabeth Taylor role, and Peter was brick. Never in the world would I think the two of us would have been opposite each other in something like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I didn't feel right for the role, and Peter... Well, Peter was brilliant, a little odd. <laughs> but he was hard to get close to. But David, as a director, 
was an actor's dream. I was having the most trouble getting the feel for Maggie, physically, I mean. There's a scene where I was supposed to stand in front of a mirror. I guess I was in my slip. Betty, are you good in athletics? Well, David, I like to play tennis and do different things. Good. All I want you to do, Betty, is pick up your right foot and turn and stand and plant that foot. You want me to... Bring it around and just plant it. In that moment, I thought, wow, it clicked right in. Just that move gave me a sense of, okay, I think I've got it. Just a little something that would connect with me enough so that I could that I could find Maggie within myself. Did you see Betty in that slip? On stage, no less. Who does she think she is? How dare she flaunt her body in front of the community like that? Every time she was on stage, I covered my husband's eyes. <laughs> I didn't even let my husband go. That theater isn't going to last if they do filth like that at every show. This is what happens when Pittsburghers come to Wheeling. Amen. Here she, Here she comes. comes, quiet. Well, our production was a success, but that slip caused me a lot of trouble in the community. People would cross the street and not even talk to me because I had been on stage in a slip. I never thought about that part of the show. And my husband, Joe, was just settling into business here. Thankfully, he didn't mind being a slip. My dear Joe supported everything I did in the theater. The reviews are pretty good, too. Betty, anybody who would make me believe they were in love with Peter Whittaker has to be a good actress. <laughs> My name is Jessie Coleman, and my family moved to Wheeling in the 1970s as a part of the Back to Nature kick. We weren't hippies, we just wanted to get away from the city. And when we bought a farm, our friends in Philadelphia thought we were nuts. We had that farm for several years. Back then, you could buy over 100 acres for 10 bucks an acre. We didn't exactly farm all of it, but my husband was a fanatic about keeping the hillside mowed and looking pretty. We had cows and horses and sheep for a while. And we had turkeys. I hated the turkeys, and one of the turkeys hated much as I hated him. One time, I was getting out of my car and the turkey charged at me determined to bite me. My husband grabbed him by the neck, dragged him into the house, and opened the oven door. You see this oven door? That's where you're going if you don't stop biting my wife. <laughs> it was an old McDonald farm. Our chickens laid eggs, and we'd take the eggs into town to sell them. We didn't really miss Philly and all the city noise. My husband died at 59. I sold the farm, but I still have the mineral rights. I was smart, and I'm getting ready to cash in real soon. I'm going to be getting a nice check before the end of the year. My name is Shirley Milton. I was on the board committee 
that voted for the consolidated high school. And it was very interesting how difficult it was because Warwood didn't want to consolidate, Wheeling didn't want to consolidate, Tridelphia didn't want to consolidate. So what were we going to do to motivate these areas? There was a lot of planning to see how you could motivate. Warwood, Wheeling, Tridelphia. We came up with a lot of figures about what they would have together that they didn't have individually. My name is Tim Thompson. I was part of the first graduating class at Wheeling Park High School, the class of 77. I remember my junior year of high school when they said park was going to happen, and it was in 76, but they weren't sure enough to know what class ring we should order. In fact, there were people from Wheeling and Triadelphia that ordered class rings for their respective high school, and there never ended up being a class of 77 for either school. There was so much controversy about that, Tim. A lot of politics being played. The superintendent of schools at that time was Henry Meraki. Well, it was driven a lot by sports, wasn't it? Yes, it was. The Board of Education wanted championship teams from Ohio County. And some of the schools in the South were just bigger. Parkersburg had consolidated, Charleston had consolidated, Brooke and John Marshall had consolidated up north. Our school just couldn't compete. But what ended up happening was the sports did well, but everything else did better. Speech and debate got better, the arts program got better, music was just huge, and the band became the first thing to earn recognition throughout the state. Theater, automotive, vocational, all terrific. The vocational program did a lot of the lights for the Festival of Lights at Ogilvy. They, they're still working on it, I think. And the school now has a greenhouse and a store where you can buy their wares. That's all new. Well, the sad part is when we had Lindsley, Tridelphia, Warwood, Wheeling, and Wheeling Central, there were five schools that played sports against each other in the city. It really was an exciting time when Tridelphia would play Lindsley or Central would play Wheeling. We were all rivals. It was fun. But that's gone now. Wheeling Park doesn't play Lindsley or Central anymore. They're too big of a school. So you lost the love of pride in your school, which is what I loved about teaching in Blair. Everyone there could go to all the games because they were local. Now they tend to travel pretty far away. So I guess that part has lost some of its charm. Well, I was on the first football team. It was strange because I was with kids from Warwood and Wheeling who two years before we'd played against. And to this day, in our minds, we're not really teammates because I'm still from Tridelphia and they're still from Warwood and Wheeling. That's consolidation was more bitter than sweet for the sports teams. Well, the football coaches played a lot of politics, too. Who got to play, which position. And after all of that buildup to make this powerhouse football team, we actually lost our first game against Wheeling Central. <laughs> it was a close game. But I think we realized that no matter how many players you have on your team, it doesn't matter. You can only put 11 players out there at a time. But sports be damned, it did help the schools academically. And that's what counts. That's what counts.
epilogue. That's just the way it was. Our drama began over 100 years ago, and here we are in 2022, still living in a community we love, still holding out hope for its future, still praying the tide of change will turn in our direction. Our storytellers today knew Wheeling back when it was thriving. But what happened? I raised three daughters here. All three have college education, all doing, doing well. But the trouble is, I only have one of them living here. One has gone to Florida, and the other to Arizona. They like it here, but no work. You've got to be able to make a buck. This area is a shame. If you could just get that cracker plant started now and get some revenue in here, it's a nice place to live. I hate to say it, but there's nothing here for our kids. Not like when I was growing up. You had the Benwood Mill. You had to be in a railroad. Between the two of them, they kept about 6,000 people working. Sometimes it's depressing to go through Wheeling now that they don't have a lot to offer. They never, ever made the river a plus. Wheeling was very wealthy. This house, along with many other houses on National Road, they were all big, just like Elmhurst. And industry was booming in the 50s. We never had any of the problems that we're having today. People don't want to work. It's awful not teaching our youth the work codes. But I think, we all think, we'll figure it out. We always do. Whatever our challenges are, Wheeling is our home, and we love it, no matter its flaws. And if you look closely enough, you'll still find there's great beauty and quality of humanity to behold both in our mountain landscapes and in our fellow citizens. That's just the way it is. I remember when I was in graduate school and the teacher asked what the best acting we had ever seen was. Well, I said town gate. And they were like, oh, that couldn't be. It's a community theater. No, no, no. There are as fine actors here in Wheeling as I've seen anywhere. Broadway, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, you name it. This is home. West Virginia is home. There's something about this state. People may leave, but boy, it calls you back when you're ready to relax and retire and enjoy being here. It's not only the physical environment, the beauty, the trees, the Ohio River, but also the people. The people are warm and will help you out whenever you need anything. They seem spontaneous. Families get along well. We were in the car with my mother, my younger sister, who was 11 years younger than I am, my two children, my older sister who was visiting, and we were driving back from Memphis. Along the way, I saw the flatlands of Ohio and Indiana, and it just made me cringe. All I could think of was the Dust Bowl, blowing winds, no trees, but driving back through Eastern Ohio, 
then crossing into the river into West Virginia. I cried. I was so glad to see the hills. I cried. And so concludes, that's just the way it was. A co-production of Elmhurst, the House of Friendship, Ogilvy Institute's Towngate Theater, and the Ohio Valley Cloak and Dagger Company. The cast featured Jesse Coleman, Charlene Goodwin, Gene Hicks, Jim Hossman, Shirley Milton, Joan Mudge, Penny Marat, Bertha Sacco, Betty Steele, B. Stelmack, Catherine Wallington, and Emily Wilson. Our supporting players and sound effect artists included Pete Fernball, Carissa Martin, Judy McNabb, Rose Humway, and Tim Thompson. Our script was based on interviews conducted with residents here at Elmhurst, the House of Friendship. Special thanks to Jamie Crow and Samantha Kessner for being flexible and accommodating over the last three months as we worked on this project. To Diane Moore and Chef Travis for always including us in their delicious and hearty lunches. And to Micah Labishak Underwood and Danielle Cross McCracken for helping us to develop this grant. And of course, abundant thanks to the residents here at Elmhurst for opening up their lives to our creativity. Until next time, we wish you all long life, good health, and much peace. Thank you, and have a wonderful afternoon. Yes, let's give our cast a round of applause, please. Thank you all for coming out.